This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss how to live a long, heart-healthy life with geriatric pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll learn how to measure happiness with physician, scientist, and author, Dr. Alphonsus Abayuana. We'll find out the importance of understanding the whys of depression with author Fast Ruggiero. And lastly, we'll discover how to improve access to cervical cancer screening with researcher Dr. Mandana Vahabi. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. You feel the pain, so you pop a couple ibuprofen or acetaminophen. If the pain is severe or chronic, you might be prescribed something stronger, like an opioid painkiller that can be addictive under some circumstances. But what if you could ease pain by non-invasively manipulating a spot inside your brain where pain is registered? A new study found that sound waves from low-intensity focused ultrasound aimed at a place deep in the brain called the insula can reduce both the perception of pain and other effects of pain, such as heart rate changes. At high intensity, ultrasound can ablate tissue. At low intensity, it can cause gentler, transient biological effects, such as altering nerve cell electrical activity. Neuroscientists have long studied how non-surgical techniques, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation, might be used to treat depression and other issues. A new study, however, is the first to target the insula and show that focused ultrasound can reach deep into the brain and ease pain. Question. What's the best way to make sure you're getting the most up-to-date and accurate health and wellness information? Answer. The Tonic Newsletter, of course. Visit www.thetonic.ca and sign up today. I'll be joined by Annie Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, Canada's only online clinical pharmacy. Andy is active in his profession, serving on several committees, including the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario's Ontario Dementia Care Alliance, and he is the Prescribed Pharmacy Ambassador for Canada Health InfoWay. The Health Depot Pharmacy is an online clinical pharmacy providing free, no-obligation consultations. They meet with you to discuss your medications and answer your questions and deliver your prescriptions free anywhere in Ontario. For more information, please visit thehealthdepot.ca. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you doing? 
That's about it. How you doing, Jamie? Good. Full of, full of joy, full of love, uh, full of all those things, hearts. So it's apropos today that we're going to talk about heart health, right? Absolutely. Uh, very timely. So why is it important to prioritize our heart health, Andy? Um, well, I mean, obviously, we all know our hearts are very important. <laughs> it allows us to pump oxygen and nutrients all over our body. However, unfortunately, as we age, heart problems become very common, whether it's high blood pressure, heart disease, or even heart failure. Um, the issue is that heart disease goes undetected often until it's too late. Um, and usually, though, a lot of people don't realize that blood pressure is a big indicator to potential future heart problems. Yet, blood pressure is often call, called by your doctor. If you go to the doctor, you call, they often call it as the silent killer. As many don't know they have it or often ignore it because it, it, you know, the symptoms that you have when you have high blood pressure don't really disrupt your day-to-day life like a lot of other conditions can. And globally, this is a huge problem. I mean, I think it's somewhere around like 19 to 20% of all deaths are attributed to heart disease. And in Canada, I think it's over 40% of uh, adults over the age of 25 have high blood pressure and 70% of Adults over the age of 80 have hypertension as well, high blood pressure that leads towards heart disease. So it's very extremely important we prioritize our heart. What constitutes high blood pressure? What, what are, what's the reading? Well, I mean, it's supposed to vary as we age, right? So mm-hmm. it's generally like your doctor will always tell you 120 over 80, but it depends on a lot of different factors. Like that's an arbitrary target. You're um, 120, the high number, your systolic, is when your heart is pumping actively blood through your 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 arteries. Yep. Whereas the lower ones, when it's at rest, and yeah, that's the ideal of a 20 year old. But as we age, our blood pressure, our arteries become a little bit harder naturally. We lose a little bit, a little bit of elasticity, and that target is actually a little bit higher as we age, and it's uh, it drifts up to like 130 to 140 over 60. And some organizations even believe 150 over 90 is not a bad number either. But it really depends on if you have other factors, such as if you have arrhythmia in your heart or diabetes, some other conditions where you might need to have a lower target blood pressure to strive for. And what and what are those symptoms that you were referring to earlier that that go unnoticed but are symptoms of high blood pressure? Oh, I mean, it's just, I mean, what I was mentioning that, you know, they don't cause symptoms, high right. blood pressure. Often it's just, it's very tough to detect when your your blood's pumping at a lot higher beats, right? It's not yeah. something that really often causes you to um, angst, right? It's you, 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 if you're even at a workout, right? Your blood pressure can go over sometimes 200 beats. Right. Right. And then your blood pressure is skyrocketing to a really high number, systolic and diastolic. But it's not something that really disrupts you. Right. It, um, that it's going to make it so your, your, your day-to-day functioning is, uh, is impaired. Right. So it's, that's why it's called the silent killer because people can live with high blood pressure and think that they're, they're fine and tickety boo, but, um, it's actually, it it leads to more serious problems long-term if you don't try to get it under those targets that uh, the doctors and, and health Canada and heart stroke foundation set for you. How does diet play into high blood pressure and heart health? Well, diet is, is generally very important, right? Um, it's, it, you know, there's diet, lifestyle, and, you know, and obviously if all those fail, medications. It's always important to start with the, the non-medications first, as I, I always like to say, yep. because there's side effects of those as well. But diet, like it's, 
Um, high sodium, for instance, is the one that gets a lot of attention. And it actually accounts for about a third of all hypertension uh, cases, right? And the guideline for that is like wanting to keep salt under 2,300 milligrams of sodium a day. Mm-hmm. And then it's just trying to eat healthy with a balanced diet of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean proteins, really trying to cut out the cholesterol and um, uh, a lot of, and, you know, salts and things like that out of your diet. It's, there's a lot of good examples to follow would be the Canada's Food Guide. But then there's a lot of other resources that you can look into, you know, even on diets and recipe guides that you can find on, for instance, on the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada, or especially Diabetes Canada have, a, have great resources that can really lead you to diets and even recipe options that can really optimize that that Canada food guide, that healthy eating that we should all be striving for. What are some examples of some heart-healthy food, if you don't know? Like, I can think of a few off the top of my head, but but what are your go-to? Oh, so um, absolutely. There's things like grains, oats, quinoa, brown rice, fish, poultry tends to be a lot healthier as well. Um, things that have lean, not as many saturated fats, um, mm-hmm. legumes, right? Um nuts, seeds, avocados, olive oils. There's lots of different foods. Lot, like fruits and vegetables are like staples for sure. Yeah. But it's like trying to have a balance, not too much carbohydrates, um, very low in saturated and trans fats. Those are definitely the ones. Uh, and low in salt is very good ones, uh, food to focus on. Okay. So, you know, you know, I'm kind of an exercise fiend, but, but let's explain why exercise ties in so much to heart health. Absolutely. So regular aerobic exercise has actually been found to reduce blood pressure right after for the next like even 24 hours, blood pressure five to seven um, points, which is uh, pretty significant. Um, and that can treat it, uh, tra- that translates to a 20 to 30 percent reduction in overall heart disease over time. Generally, the recommendations are 150 min- minutes of moderate activity a week. Right. But I mean, people think that that means you have to get up and run. But I mean, moderate activity is very broad. It means you could evenly walk, right? For yep. um, that, it can just be walking, swimming, um, sports such as tennis or pickleball, which is a very big craze, right? Climbing stairs, dancing, gardening is even considered uh, moderate activity. So 150 minutes isn't that much. That's uh, less than three hours uh, a week. And it can be broken down into like 30 minute sections, right? But that's all that's required to really help to um, maintain that can have a, a significant impact on helping your blood pressure and your overall heart health. So how do you get your exercise in? Because we're all busy. I'll, I'll, I, like for me, I've got a very active dog and that means I'm walking at least an hour a day with that dog. Uh, in addition to everything else I do. And, and we put in a home gym so that there's absolutely no excuse for any of us not to be able to exercise, but, but what are some of your tips to get the exercise in? Yeah, well, I, I find I love, I mean, I'm besides running around my kids who are in tons of activities all the time, Right. I, I imagine that counts. I should get one of those Fitbits and track how many steps I'm taking a day. Yeah. I imagine it's pretty high, but I mean, I also really love to play sports. I find myself, I'm not, I don't like to just go for long runs. But I, I like to play, I, I play, for instance, play hockey. I play uh, soccer when I can. And um, even biking. I, I took up um, uh, mountain biking recently because mm-hmm. I found that was a little more interesting. It's trying to find activities that you really enjoy and social ones. Um, I know a huge craze lately is pickleball. 
Right. So that's something that I may want to take up coming up as well. It's um, try to have fun with it. And then social, the more you're in social environments with these kind of things, the more you're inclined to want to do them as well. I agree. I mean, one thing that we were doing is, you know, my kids were older when I did this. But I would exercise with them. In other words, we would take classes together. Like we would take HIT classes and ex- I would do that with my daughter. So you're kind of doubling up on time with your kids and you're also getting your exercise in. That's tip number three. Absolutely. And I, I do the same thing with my son who's really getting big into hockey. I'll go daddy, son, shimmy with him, right? And yeah. pass the puck around with him and skate around the ice, which is another great option. It's just trying to put it into whatever your interests are into your your uh, week-to-week, day-to-day activities. And before long, you know what, you're doing well over 150 minutes a week. So, you know, exercise is good for me because it allows me to sort of turn off my brain and it allows me to sort of stop thinking about all the things that I'm worried about and, and helps me manage stress. But there are other things we can do as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, stress is another thing that increases your blood pressure as well. Um, and it can have a negative effect on it, right? So there's, yeah, I, physical activity is mine as well. <laughs> so yeah. it kind of doubles to help with uh, managing stress. It releases so many different um, endorphins and, and you know, these signal molecules and cytokines in our body that really helps to calm us down, believe it or not, and lower our blood pressure. But uh, there's other things you can do, relaxation techniques, uh, yoga, meditation, deep breathing. Um, and it's just trying to find out, you know, stepping away and trying to, there's a lot of mental things you can do and mental coaches and making sure you're getting adequate sleep, uh, enough of a social support network. If you're a very social individual, getting out, having a little bit of fun. And, you know, obviously if there's significant things impacting your life that cause stress, speaking to a professional uh, that can help to manage your stress levels is very important as well. I have a friend who, you know, who, who, um, uh, gets as stressed out as I do. It's not me. I, I'm not speaking, you know, euphemistically, literally a friend of mine yeah. who, who, who swears by meditation to help clear his yeah. mind. And and it can be done. I mean, he does it, I think, maybe five, 15 minutes at the beginning of the day. It's part of his wake up routine. I can't do that. I'm not a morning person. But <laughs> yeah. but uh, I think that works for a lot of people, too. Absolutely. Um, it's It's kind of because obviously meditation comes part and part with reflecting and, you know, you might not be able to solve a lot of your problems that you're stressed about when you meditate, but it's like, it's controlling your breathing, bringing your heart rate down. And it's just helping to settle yourself. I've, I, I also am a very busy body, so I don't do too much of that, but I have some friends who very successfully meditate and they find that it's a very good thing to help them to center themselves a little bit more and to not worry. It helps to put things in perspective, take a little time to clear your thoughts and you don't, it helps to also not to put in perspective and not stress the small stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And it helps to really calm that down. That's what they find. Okay, so you are a clinical pharmacist. How can a clinical pharmacist help somebody who's looking to be heart smart? Absolutely, like the, uh, a lot, actually. So pharmacy, it's I guess it's like the, the last stage. You know, as we age, unfortunately, you know, you should be always doing lifestyle in any condition first, right? Mm-hmm. Focus on that. There are medications that can help you as well, because as we naturally age, people with genetics, your blood pressure does sometimes skyrocket and go higher just because your arteries harden over time as well. There are medications that can help manage that, but it's just with clinical pharmacists making sure a center point that can help coach you on all the lifestyle, the diet, and help to refer you and be that center point for you. They've actually shown trials even in Canada that uh, there was a six-month trial done in Alberta who can prescribe medications for you, just like doctors, pharmacists, 
that they found that um, pharmacists were able to bring down systolic blood pressure by 18.3 numbers, you know, like Mm. from, so let's say you're at 170 down to 150 or vice versa, like, you know, uh, even to lower in six months alone and reducing your relative risk of heart disease 50%. That could be huge cost savings, great resource for everyone to tap into your pharmacist because not only can they help guide you to helping to make sure we monitor and make sure your blood pressure is in check so you you don't have heart problems long time, but they can also help to triage to make sure if you do have to take a medication for, for blood pressure and heart disease, and there's hundreds of them, right. <laughs> that it's the right one for you, that it agrees with you, It doesn't, you don't have side effects that you shouldn't be, if you're too low, this is a big problem with older adults, that their blood pressure is too low and they're actually falling over because some of those medications can have some rather nasty side effects and make you dizzy. It's making sure you're at the right medication and the right dose for you that agrees with you. And that's that's the definite, definite advantage of speaking to a clinically focused pharmacist. Makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thanks, Jamie. That was Andy Donald. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn how to measure happiness on The Tonic. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Alphonsus Abayuana, MD, PhD, CPC, is a physician scientist, a happiness coach, and the founder and CEO of Triple H Project LLC, an entity that trains and certifies happiness coaches. He's the author of The Happiness Formula, Using Science to Understand Personal Satisfaction, Human Hope, and Subjective Well-Being. And if you're interested in learning more about Alphonsus, you should visit www.triplehproject.com. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Thank you very much, sir. So I'm one of those guys who I think most people would say I'm a glass half empty guy. I don't project happiness. I I find contentment, but I, you know, I think most people say I'm a bit of a skeptic, you know, a bit, a bit dour, a bit down. Is happiness a subjective concept or can it be objectively measured? It is both subjective and objective as a concept. Okay. What do you mean by that? You can think of it by yourself, and somebody can think of it also. So it can be subjective, and it can be objective as a concept. However, when you are measuring it, it is usually measured subjectively. 
because only the individual who is concerned knows about himself or herself, whether he or she is happy or not. Nobody else can tell that. There is no other way of finding out who is happy and who is unhappy, except you ask the person. So it is subjective in terms of measurement. But as a concept, it's both a subjective concept and an objective concept. Do people know if they're actually happy, though? I mean, I may think I'm happy, but am I actually right? Or you're saying it doesn't make a difference. If I think I'm happy, I'm happy. It does make a difference. In fact, this is what this book is all about. We talk about happiness, but we don't have a way of measuring it objectively. So you just ask people, how are you doing? So I'm doing fine. That's one way of finding out whether people are happy. Everything is okay. They say, yes, everything is okay. Mm. But is it really? I don't think so. Okay. So that is what this book is about. Until now, we can only measure happiness just like that by asking people, how do you feel? How, How satisfied are you with your life? In Gallup World Surveys, they usually ask people, imagine the worst life as zero and imagine the best possible life as 10. Where are you? From one from zero to ten. And people can say four, they can say five. There are many problems with that. Yeah. And that's what this book has solved. You can now measure the happiness of someone by plugging in his or her aspirations, hopes, hungers, and assets. And you will come out with a, a measure of happiness called the Personal Happiness Index, PHI. And that is what this is all about. By using the formula that I discovered by chance, I might say, it's a chance discovery that hope over hunger equals happiness. Okay. So reading between the lines here, you seem to be suggesting that you know, looking to the future and having aspirations is what makes us happy. Um, but is that is that necessarily true or is that just your construct? That is true. And you can go into the literature, uh, you will see. And even by face validity, think of hope and hunger. By hunger, I mean compelling desires that you have. Okay. Okay. And hope. If you have hope, first of all, people who don't have hope, those are the ones that take their own lives. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Those people who are really dissatisfied with life. So when you when you are more hopeful than you are hungry, you are happy. When you are hungrier than you are hopeful, you are unhappy. And that is the bottom line. And you can go into the literature. You can do it by yourself, uh, experientially. Through anecdotes, you will see this to be true. And uh, we have tested thousands of people in Africa, in Canada, and the United States, in North America, in uh, Central America and the Caribbeans. And uh, in a room of about 100 or 200 people, each person will have a different score. Occasionally, you might have two people having the same score, but for for the different reasons. Whereas if you just do zero to 10, you can only have possibility of uh, 10 scores. Right. And that one is fraught 
with a lot of uh, room for errors. But how do you how do you uh, scale a concept such as hope? Like so so for example, like if you're attaching a numerical value to my my ideas of hope, how do you, like I, I'm trying to wrap my head around that process. I'm, I'm struggling a bit. Can you can you talk me through it? Very good question. It started when I was a third year medical student. I was taking care of or happy to take care of two patients who had at, at, attempted suicide. When I talked with them, I was just so surprised that people can think that way, that tomorrow is just going to be like today. And today is just like yesterday. There's nothing different. There's nothing going to happen. It's going to be just as uncomfortable. So what's the need of being here? That's the way they thought. I was very, very taken aback. And I suggested to my professors if I could do a research on hope so that if we can measure hope, when we see people are low in hope, we can attend to them um, early enough before they start thinking about suicide. And luckily, within a month or two, I got a national medical fellowship to do that research. And that's what started me into this. And we made a, 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 a tool for measuring hope. And it has been used in Coca-Cola, in General Motors, other 500, 500 uh, companies. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And including institutions inside and outside of the United States. So there is a scale for measuring hope. In fact, I have already published that in medical journals and it has been used by graduate students. And uh, so what it is, Jamie, is that there are five human assets that we all have, potentially or in reality. Those assets are intrinsic assets, human family assets, economic assets, educational assets, and spiritual assets. We can measure those. We coin questions to measure those. And that is how you measure hope. Hunger is the same thing. There are five inborn human hungers, which means compelling desires. Mm -hmm. These are the hunger for induction, inclusion, and acknowledgement, hunger for intimacy and trusted companion, hunger for food and comfort, hunger for information and answers, hunger for certainty and continuity. How did we know that these are inborn? Because we started studying it when a baby just comes out of the uterus. Is this akin to like the, the basic needs pyramid when you're talking about the, this hunger? Is it Maslow came up with the Oh, Maslow, Maslow is figured into it. Okay. In fact, Maslow, in his hierarchy of uh, needs, yeah. talk about food and shelter. Exactly. In fact, that's the first demand of a newborn. Jamie, we are all born unhappy. If you've ever been to a delivery room, I have. There is no baby that is born that comes out and thanking everybody for delivering him or her. Okay. They, we are crying. We are kicking. We are screaming. And what stops the crying and the screaming? When we are wiped dry, wrapped in a warm clothing, cuddled and given milk. Yes. The crying stops. Food and comfort. In the nursery, 
when there are seven babies in the nursery and baby number four is crying, it's one of two things. Either the diaper is wet or it's hungry. Yeah. Or so that's how we find out the inborn, five inborn hungers. Right. And of course, for questions, you know how children ask questions. Yes. And you know that. And in for inclusion and acknowledgement, if you are a father, uncle, or an older sibling, you know. Uh, am I going to be a big boy like you, daddy? Look at what I did. I did it all by myself. Oh, mommy, they won't let me join. They won't play with me. Inclusion and acknowledgement, very important. And these hungers follow us all through life. The intensity might vary, but it's all through life. So if you are more hopeful than you are hungry, you are happy. And your PHI will be one or above. Okay, so the ratio of your positive emotions should be higher than your negative emotions. That that makes total sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Jimmy. That was Dr. Alphonsus Abayuana. We have to take a short break, uh, but when we return, we'll discuss why people suffer from depression on The Tonic. Aaron Wellness, empowering women through holistic health is more than just a mission, it's their passion. Leaning on the latest scientific research, they've crafted a range of all-natural, high-grade supplements to support women in their unique health journeys. Whether it's perimenopause, hormonal imbalances, sleep issues, or weight loss, each product purchase comes with a comprehensive program complete with educational materials, nutritional information, and strategies for long-term health and wellness. Made for women by women, Aaron Wellness supplements are available online at Aaron wellness.com or at select health stores across Canada. Start your transformation with Aaron Wellness today and experience the change that they bring to lives. Visit AaronWellness.com. That's A-E-R-Y-O-N wellness.com because your journey to wellness begins here. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic. Your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Fostrogero's professional career spans almost 40 years and is diversified and compelling as it has consistently established new and exciting cutting-edge counseling programs in its pursuit of professional excellence and personal life enhancement. He's a published research author, clinical trainer, and therapist who has worked in settings that have included clinics for deaf children, prisons, nursing homes, substance abuse centers, inpatient facilities, major corporations, both national and international, and as president of the Community uh, Psychological Center in Bangor, Pennsylvania. In that capacity, he's developed the Process Way of Life Counseling Program and has developed it into a formal text presentation in the Fix Yourself Handbook. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm well. Uh, thanks for having me back. It's great to be with you, Jamie. So we're going to talk a little bit about depression today and understand a little bit more about what it is and what it isn't and how it's caused and how we can deal with it. Sound like a plan? Sounds great. Let's do it. So for those who don't know or maybe are misinformed, what is depression? Well, you know, 
we keep hearing about it as a mental health concern and that it's there but really depression is a physical problem it's a a problem where neurotransmitters are not being produced properly they don't stimulate the brain to do what it needs to do uh so it's what we call clinical depression which means depressed activity in the brain and that's all around that's just not with the way you feel you're happy you're sad whatever that's about everything your thinking your motivation your ability to follow through things and the whole body physically is in a depressed state so is it like a chemical or hormonal imbalance in fact yeah, it's both actually yeah Okay. Uh, you know, it can it can be uh, just neurotransmitters. Uh, sometimes it's hormonal uh, things coming out, you know, the adrenal gland, uh, um, the, the thyroid, things like that. Uh, when things aren't working right on a physical level, these are the kinds of problems we can experience. So, if if that's what clinical depression is, is everybody susceptible to it, or are there genetic predispositions, or are there triggering events which cause clinical depression? You said a mouthful. It's all all the above. Okay. Uh, you know, for some people, it is a predisposition. It's a family thing. We see that a lot. Some people, it's um, uh, you know, a traumatic episode. Something happens, and it so uh, uh, it traumatizes the brain, and they just go into a depression. Uh, other people, it's neurotransmitters and things like that. You know, we normally uh, you know get into that once we start uh, diagnosing and, and counseling, but uh, it could be anything, and sometimes it's multiple factors. How can you tell if somebody's clinically depressed as opposed to just being unhappy or having a bad day or something more serious yeah. but different? You look at intensity and duration, really. Um, I'm having a bad day. Usually, you know, you know, you know, my girlfriend broke up with me. It's Valentine's Day. Uh, uh, you know, finances aren't where they need to be. The boss and I aren't on, a, on the same page. All that kind of stuff. Those are environmental things that can get us angry or sad or whatever. But uh, when you get to clinical depression, you can't get out of it. It's day after day. You look for multiple symptoms, uh, physical symptoms also. Uh, you know, So it's an entirely different animal. The real key is that you, it doesn't stop. The other things usually will stop or, or you look at solutions and they're there. Let's fix the girlfriend, the boss, whatever, but not with depression. No matter what you do, nothing seems to be working. Are there degrees of clinical depression? Like I tend to be, for example, a pretty much a half, a glass half empty type of guy. So like I'm pessimistic and I can be quite negative, but that's not the same as depression or is it? No, it's not. One, one can be an attitude or, or uh, a way that your brain was trained to think, so to speak, over the years. Yeah. Depression robs you of the ability to be that glass half uh, full person. It, it, you know, you just can't do it. You try. A lot of depressed people really try uh, to get happy. They try so many different things, medicines and counselings and all different kinds of things, that they can't come out of it. Uh, so it, it's it's a whole different animal. So is it treatable? When you, Because, you know, when, when, when I hear about counselling and I hear about drugs and interventions and things like that, that would seem to be the type of things that we're all kind of maybe aware of on some level that would help with depression. But you're saying it, it doesn't or does it? It's, it's very treatable. Uh, the, the real key is in, in proper diagnosis. And what happens that people either get misdiagnosed or they get incomplete diagnoses. And when that happens, now, now the, uh, the uh, treatment uh, regime uh, isn't where it needs to be. I always get my people you know, to the, to the doctor. We're going to do the blood work. We're going to see if um, uh, the thyroid is working properly, if the uh, hormones are all where they need to be. And then I'm going to start looking at 
family history, uh, those types of things, and the traumatic episodes. Yeah, some, some of those traumatic episodes can be emotional things that happened, abuse, whatever, or some of them can be physical. You, you didn't realize that when you fell and hit your head and you had that concussion, uh, things changed. So we're going to go and get all those factors in order, because when we put a treatment plan together in a counseling program, we want it to touch all the various uh, parts of the person. Off the top of the interview, we were talking about neurotransmitters and, and chemical and, and hormonal issues, which are, which are physiological. What actually happens physiologically if you're clinically depressed? Well, the, the brain operates, you know, and I always try to get this through to people. The brain is a physical organ, so it's, it is it is guided by physical laws, physical, uh, medical, biological, call it what you will. What happens is that the brain needs these chemicals, these neurotransmitters, to do what it's supposed to do. That's part of the, the whole uh, mental, cognitive, physical process of the brain. Without those chemicals at the right levels, imbalance is the word you hear a lot, uh, then the brain has to, it has to work a little harder. Um, you know, to, to just to do simple tasks. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the depressed person gets up and says, well, today, you know, I'll start a load of laundry and it never gets done because they can't motivate themselves. Other people look and say, well, well what's the problem here? And that that task needs to have those uh, those neurotransmitters, those chemicals working at least at levels that motivate you enough to start it and follow through. Uh, and then on, on the more complicated things in life, relationships and jobs and running homes and all that, you know, you really need that brain working uh, at a level that, it, that, that it's supposed to be working at for you to do all those things. So when we talk about neurotransmitters not, not being there or not working efficiently or not being at sufficient levels, is there a way to actually test if you have sufficient neurotransmitters? Or That's the problem. We're not really there yet. Well, we can we can do we can do genetic testing uh, to determine if there's predisposition for things. But when it comes to anxiety, depression, particularly depression, we're we're just not there yet. Uh, what we can do, what's happening is uh, there are genetic tests to determine which medicines are most efficient for certain people. There's a, you know, an area of medicines they'll say, well, these are going to be toxics and next ones, maybe they'll work, maybe they don't. And then a good class of medicines. And we've been more efficient. I'm not going to say, you know, we're there yet, but at least we're more efficient at determining what medicines might work. But in terms of, gee, let's do the blood test for depression. You have depression. We're not there. Okay, so it sounds to me like with respect to some of these treatments is a little bit of trial and error then, right? Always is. That's that's you know, that's where uh, you know it, it depends on how efficient your diagnostic and uh counseling team is. You know how good people can diagnose and say okay, these are all the parameters we have to work with. Then you're you're much better off. When it comes to medicine, that's often hit or miss, and particularly in depression. If you think you have depression or someone else uh uh, in your family may have it. What I tell people is try to get uh, get get to your doctor. Start with your, with your primary care physician. Go there and and get the blood work done. See if your thyroid and, and your your you know the rest of your body is working the way it's supposed to be working. Your hormone levels are where they need to be. Uh, you, you always try to treat something on a physical level first. If that's all in order, then the advice is always 
get yourself to a psychologist, you know, someone who specializes in depression. And that's the key phrase. There are a lot of counselors out there. There are a million, uh, you know, coaches that are doing what, uh, what, what they're telling you they're doing. But to treat depression, you really have to specialize in that uh, because it hits on so many different levels. So, you know, th th those two factors, get the physical part addressed. If there's a problem there, you just start working with that. If not, then get yourself to someone who's a specialist in the area. In your experience, are family physicians actually good at being frontline, I guess we'll call it persons responsible for such diagnosis? I think is the word you, you, you might be looking for. And, and they can be, but you know, they, they just need to stay within in their, their own limitations, so to speak. Uh, you're going to come in, the person's going to uh, going to tell you what's going on. You've worked with it long enough that you see all the depressive symptoms. So what we're looking for from those primary care people are to get the get the blood work done. Please don't diagnose on the spot, even though you see it. And you may tell them, we think that's what you're dealing with. Let's get your blood work done so we know there's nothing physical going on. If they think that that's something very serious, they may call another professional in or get that person to an emergency room. We don't want to see them hurt themselves. In your experience, do you think these family physicians just lean into the antidepressants too quickly? And that's the problem. Yeah. You know, with, with some of them, you know, you come in, I am depressed. And, and, and I should back up the new medical model with, you know, hospitals buying up the, uh, medical practices. Uh, you know, they get, you have a, a selected amount of time. You go in, geez, five, six, seven minutes. They want you in and out of the office with the doctor. And that's how it works. That's not enough time to work with depression. So what happens? Let's go to something that's going to help you. And you may or may not need medicine. So that's where you can get into a, a real bind because sometimes where medicine is not needed and then is prescribed, we have, we have additional problems. The brain's not ready for that. Also, some of these medications have sort of spinoff effects and potential for abuse as well, I would think, right? Yeah, not as much as the opiates. Uh, you know, people don't typically abuse antidepressants because you don't really get any euphoria, immediate euphoria. So, you know, you, you, you take an opiate, which is what, you know, primary pharmaceuticals that are abused. Uh, and uh, then you're getting, you're getting the euphoria, you feel it. Fair depending enough. on where your tolerance is, you can feel it pretty quickly. You don't feel that with these, so you don't abuse them much. Uh, but what happens is, they build a tolerance in the body, and then you're saying, I'm getting depressed again. Then you go back, and what happens? Well, let's give you, you know, let's increase the dose. Right. Uh, you know, and or let's add this to keep, give it a little kick. And before you know it, you're on two or three medications. Bad news. Thank you so much for coming on the show today to explain it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me back. That was Fuss Ruggiero. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss access to cervical cancer screening on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Mandana Vahabi is a professor at Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing and co-director of the Center for Global Health and Health Equity. 
Her research and scholarship focuses on health equity and social determinants of health, particularly in the areas of cancer screening, food security, mental and sexual health. In her work with marginalized and vulnerable population, she's also been involved in the design, implementation, and evaluation of culturally appropriate health promotion interventions. Prior to joining Toronto Metropolitan University in 2007, she worked in various roles ranging from project director, policy consultant to senior epidemiologist planner at the governmental organizations such as the Ministry of Long-Term Health Care and Population Health and Policy and Planning and Women's Health Branch, uh, St. Michael's Hospital and the Toronto District Health Council. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you so much, Jamie, for your invitation and your kind introduction. So this week is Sexual and Reproductive Health Awareness Week. Can you tell us a little bit about that? With pleasure. It is an annual campaign that is aimed at promoting and educating people about the importance of sexual and reproductive health. It sheds light on the significance of taking care of one's sexual and reproductive health, which is often neglected or disregarded due to stigma and cultural taboos. It also acknowledges people's ability in having a satisfying and safe sex life and the capability and freedom to reproduce if and when desired. It recognizes and upholds human rights to rep reproductive and sexual health. That includes the right to life, liberty, and the security of the person, the right to health care and information, and the right to non-discrimination in, in the allocation of resources to sexual health services and their availability and accessibility. Okay. Now, when you think about sexual health and wellness, there is a cancer which is associated with that, and that is cervical cancer. Can you explain a little bit about what cervical cancer actually is and some of the risk factors involved? So as you mentioned, the cervical cancer is another type of cancer that it uh, starts in the cells of the cervix, which is the lower part of the uterus that connects the uh, to vagina. And the primary risk factor for uh, cervical cancer is infection with human papilloma virus, which is called HPV. And most people, and basically most women who develop cervical cancer have had an HPV infection. But having an HPV infection doesn't mean that one gets cervical cancer. There are many different kinds of HPV virus that can affect the cervix, but only some of them can cause abnormal changes to cells that may turn into cancer. There are about 100 types of H HPV, but about uh, 40 of them can infect the genital regions. There are low and high risk uh, types of uh, HPV, and the low risks are generally associated with general herpes and don't cause cervical cancer. But there are 13 to 15 high risk types that are associated with cervical cancer, like HPV uh, 16 and 18, that are the most common types of sources that could cause actually uh, cervical cancer. So sexual activity, because HPV virus is uh, uh, communicated through sexual activity. So being sexually active means having more than one person as, uh, for um, sexual intercourse. And it uh, means that any genital skin-to-skin -skin contact or having oral sex would actually lead uh, a person to get the, the HPV virus. I have to also point out that 80% of like anyone who are sexually active 
is prone to get HPV virus. So it's not really um, something that we should be ashamed of. Um, the majority of the time, the HPV virus actually clears out by our own immune system. They are on, on uh, rare occasions where it stays there and um, it would take maybe 10 to 15 years before one can actually develop cervical cancer. So it uh, grows slowly when it's not going to be, you know, responded by our immune system to control it. So when it stays there for a long time, it definitely would uh, lead to the cervical cancer. If one were to get the virus, the HPV virus, which could lead to cancer, is it treatable at the viral stage? And and Absolutely. and is it also treatable at the, at the cancer stage, should it develop? So a very good question, Jamie. So basically, HPV virus, uh, because of our own immune system, majority of time when we get it, and it's uh, in the low, t- um, low risk type, it would clear out by itself. So you right. don't do anything. The body actually, the, uh, the body's immune system actually respond to it. So it takes about one to two years. Sometimes it's in your body without really causing any kind of damages to the cervical uh, um, cancer cells. But once it is um, um, damages, the cervical cancer uh, cells, that is the time that you start, the, you know, when you do the screening, you can identify it and you could actually intervene and try to use the treatments that are available, um, that there are certain cancer treatments, like such as um, surgery, for example, um, cry uh, um, surgery or laser surgery um, or other kind of surgeries or radiation and uh, chemotherapies that could actually, um, uh, you know, contain the disease from uh, growing uh, more and um, helps to actually prolong one's life. So screening is actually a very important tool so that you know, uh, I guess, if you have the the type of HPV virus, which might lead to cancer. Is that right? Exactly. So if uh, we have HPV uh, um, type 16 or Mm -hmm. 18, 31 or 45, these are the kinds that actually do lead to cervical cancer. But as I said, the progress is very slow. That's why screening is very important. So the sooner we identify it, the better we can contain it. What are the ways in which you can screen for HPV? What are the types of tests that are available? Okay, this is an excellent question. So um, for the past 70 years in Canada, we had access to something called PAP test that um, women used to go to their physician and um, what they do, they would have the um, pelvic examination and they would take a sample from the cervix and then they would send it to the lab. And then a technician there would look for changes in the cervical um, cell. So that was very helpful. And um, most women were using that and it was every three years. But there were also other group of women's. So, so, for example, low-income people with uh, low education, immigrants, sex workers, women with disability who were underutilizing pap tests. At that time, we didn't really know what was causing cervical cancer. Um, there were so many different risk factors, including like a smoking, um, you know, multiple giving multiple births and different kind of things. But um, knowing that there was a virus behind it was not known at the time. Mm. So then we discovered that there is a virus called HPV. So now that we know this virus exists, 
many of the provinces now are changing to another method of screening, which is called HPV screening, where here uh, the wire, uh, you know, they we would take a swap. I mean, uh, even women can do it themselves in the privacy of their own home. And um, they take a swab, they send it to the lab, and there is a machine that actually tests it for virus. So if you have the virus, then um, your physician will be informed and they do the follow-up. So they can do a pap test afterwards just to make sure whether the cervical cancer, um, the cervical cells are actually uh, change their appearance and it becomes abnormal. And then after that, they can actually have a clock circuit that what happens is that the physician would actually um, look at the cervix and um, uses the magnifying um, lens in order uh, to see what is the scope of the the progress of the condition there. So it is done every five years. So many of the provinces, including, for example, British Columbia now, have started this process of using HPV um, screening, and they are also offering HPV self-sampling, which removes a lot of barriers that um, most marginalized, disadvantaged women were not able to access pap tests earlier on. And I can actually explain some of those barriers. So for example, traveling time, finding a GP, and we know that now um, many of the GPs are retiring. And uh, also with the experience during the uh, COVID, you know, women didn't have access uh, to their physician. With this method, uh, it would allow women and it would empower women by doing it themselves. And it's very easy. It's even easier than taking a sample to decide whether um, to determine whether you have COVID-19 or not. So it's much easier. Uh, women can do it in the privacy of their own home and then they can send it. And it uh, gives them more control over their body. Also, another b- barriers that uh, existed was, um, you know, uh, the, the some of the women have with different kind of uh, histories like um, uh, traumas during the childhood, maybe um, sexual abuse or different kinds, they found pap tests to be very traumatizing to their uh, well-being after uh, they went to do the test. For sometimes they would avoid even undertaking the, the, the test. So it would really help them to do that. And it's not every three years anymore. It's every five years. Also, it's not like there is a technician or, or even like the sample is being taken by physicians. Sometimes it may not be taken properly. So the, the sensitivity of this uh, method of screening is 95% of the time. People can be uh, rest assured that they don't have the HPV virus, for example. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andy Donald, Dr. Alphonsus Abayuana, Fast Ruggiero, and Dr. Mandana Vahabi, PhD. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For more timely, up-to-date, and accurate health and wellness information, subscribe to The Tonic Newsletter. Now distributed once a week, The Tonic Newsletter, with content curated 
curated personally by me will keep you in the loop. There's contest prizes, insider scoops, and so much more. Visit www.thetonic.ca and sign up today. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie@thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.